Hey, moms, dads, and grandparents. This is Sandra Beck from Military Mom Talk Radio, and I know how hard it is to provide a great education for military kids. K-12 believes every child is uniquely brilliant. So to prepare them for college and succeed beyond high school, they deserve an education designed just for them. Learn more at k12.com front slash grade about enrollment. A child's brilliance comes in many forms. Some are curious, others inventive, some are analytical. K-12 is a full-time, tuition-free, online option to traditional public school. Taught by state-certified teachers, schools powered by K-12 provide an individualized education, enhancing your child's ability to succeed. K-12 programs teach to and embrace your child's unique brilliance. Students from K-12-powered schools go on to fine colleges and universities, enhancing their ability to succeed in life. Be part of the community of families who have succeeded with a tuition-free online K-12 education. K-12 welcomes students from grade K to 12. Visit k12.com front slash grade or call 855-628-9531 for more information about enrolling. That's k12.com front slash grade. Global Broadcasting Networks presents Military Mom Talk Radio. We know behind every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine is the family supporting them. With over 200 episodes in 17 countries, over five seasons, with three million monthly listeners, we are radio strong. Military Mom Talk Radio is sponsored in part by K-12. No matter where our military families are, K-12 enhances your child's ability to succeed. Now, here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Robin Boyd. Hello, military moms. This is Robin Boyd with you today. I'm here for Sandra Beck. Uh, Today is Authors Day, and I've got to say, we have got three amazing authors. It's going to be very eclectic in that each author has such a different point of view, but all somewhat uh, focusing on different periods of history, which is, is really fascinating. First, we're going to meet Barbara Jakowski. She's the author of Searching for Lincoln's Ghost, um, and it takes place in the mid-60s, and it's a, it's a lovely story, uh, a little coming of age, but there's a little bit more to it, and we'll get into that with Barbara shortly. Our second author, Joe Epley, uh, tells a very descriptive insight to the American Revolution in A Passel of Hate. Uh, very, very in-depth book, and it's, it's one that you really, really get into because it grips you right into your soul. 
And then we're going to round out the hour with a completely different perspective from Rochelle Rogers in Forever Growing a Journey of Trust. And I think it's only apropos to have her on after we talk with uh, Joe Epley, uh, because what went on in the American Revolution, um, one would think had changed after a few decades, but maybe not quite as much as we would like as a society to see have seen those changes. So we're going to talk to Rochelle about some of the challenges that life has given her and how she has worked through them and has conquered. Let's, uh, we're, we're really looking forward to meeting Rochelle on those points. And to welcome all of these uh, wonderful guests with me today, I have our veteran correspondent, Steve Boyd, joining me. Hello, Steve. Hello, I'm here. <laughs> well, you know, we have really been sharing these books. I have to say, each book has two bookmarks in it because we have just been thoroughly enjoying reading today's guests' books. And uh, uh, it, it's really been fascinating. And I know, Steve, you've had your nose uh, right in the midst of, of this, uh, the second one. We're really looking forward to having a, a, a you chat with uh, Joe Epley about that. One of the things that... Um, made me ponder though, Steve, is that we've been um, looking at different views of our society and history from three very unique perspectives. And it really gave me pause to think of how much you enjoy history. And I can only imagine that your love of history has come from growing up in Lexington, Massachusetts, and experiencing the reenactments on the Lexington Green every April 19th, which is right around the corner. Yeah, that was uh, when we were younger, especially in elementary school, we never realized the United States had been in any other wars but the mm-hmm. Revolutionary War. Uh, we grew up with it. We were indoctrinated with it. We did the tours. It was something that was always there. It was always present. Did you find uh, that it was it was just almost tradition you had to be involved in it, or did you personally feel uh, compelled to learn more about what the significance was in our country's history because of this um, of where you were growing up? I think that had a lot to do with it. I think anybody that grows up in an area that uh has a lot of history, especially early United States history, is just fascinated by it. And like I say, it's one of those things that's indoctrinated into our lifestyle because everything we saw and did, uh, as even as kids would be walking down the street and there'd be tourists all over the place, as most people know, with battlefield sites, as mm. it were, that uh, they were constantly asking us questions or if they were reading something, uh, one of us would always interject, you know, usually in a crowd of 10-year-old kids walking, no, nah, that's wrong. This is the way it really happened. <laughs> and that's really kind of funny. You became all little tour guides the whole... <laughs> Absolutely. We were all experts in it. Uh, sure. You know, we'd, we'd at, the, at an early age, we'd go around to all the uh, historical buildings from Buckman Tavern and Monroe Tavern and all the other houses, and then we'd do field trips over over to uh, Concord, where the British marched after they kind of decimated the Lexington Minutemen. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, we'd ride our bikes all over the place to all these places. And back in those days, it wasn't uh, a federal park the way it is today. Mm-hmm. So we just knew everything that was there. 
because not only that, but the ancestors, the kids that we hung around with, some of their ancestors were actually on the green during oh, the battle. Oh, sure. Right. That gave it a whole more personal it, view, viewpoint. Absolutely, yeah. Do you think that, uh, and of course, we uh, we all know that uh, tactical uh, views of history are a lot more, um, or tactile, I should say, not tactical, that's the wrong word, uh, views of history are going to be more impressive. But do you feel that you had a good feeling as far as the fam, especially knowing ancestors, the families and what their... Uh, parts in history were as opposed to this was uh, uh, what was happening to the government this was uh, this was the um the initiative of the government it, it, there's a lot more that goes on to a war than just one government arguing with another government oh absolutely um one of the things the uh one of the historical sites is called the Hancock Clark House, which was literally three doors down from where I grew, where the house I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And uh, knowing the history behind that, you know, would walk by and say, "Hey, John. Hey, Sam. How you doing?" Because <laughs> that's where the two men were hiding mm-hmm. during the initial battle. Mm-hmm. And I don't say hiding is in that they were cowards. They were the leaders, couple of the leaders of the country, so they had to stay protected. Well, sure. It was a strategic move. It was it was necessary. Yeah, so that's exactly what it was. But we'd learn everything, and then we'd go into Boston and see. Uh, uh, we had the run of Boston uh, back in the late fifties, early sixties, when a kid could still go in town and still walk yeah. around where Washington and all the greats hung around. <laughs> mm. I, I really think it's it's wonderful that more schools, in fact, I'm trying to think who it was, whether it was our little friend Tiffany or who it was that we were recently talking with, that more schools are embracing uh, their their students to do projects where they're reenacting parts in history. And I, I think it just is so important for our young people because the more we talk with a lot of the authors that we've met through the Military Writers Society of America, it's so important for every generation to write, to document, to journal, to express the things that they have experienced because uh, how is the next generation going to know? And, and I think these these efforts are, are wonderful. And, of course, the, the reenactment on the Lexington green every april is is phenomenal and your brother was one of the minutemen wasn't he yes he was i was asked to join the minutemen too and i said well this is a little too much (laughs) too much (laughs) stick for me but uh it is a lot though isn't it steve oh yes yeah and uh uh, I remember my mother's a seamstress, so she was making my brother's uh, Continental Army costume uh, when we were growing up. So that was a big deal, too. And you know, these these reenactors, whether it be Revolutionary, Civil War, or whatever, I mean, they get into it. You know, it has to be exact when they make their costumes and get their uh, equipment down. And the actual enactment of it because they have to portray who those people were what they did where they fell 
who they cried out to? Absolutely. It's it's right down based on uh, factual documentation of, uh, uh, for example, a man named Harrington crawled, whose house was right on the common, crawled over and died at his wife's feet, and the house is still there. Mm-hmm. So that's the type of thing. And uh, when I was in college, I had to, for an American history course, I had to write a uh, a paper about it and did a lot of the research out of the Lexington Library that had all the original documents uh, from the people of the period. That's really neat. I know in my college we had uh, a wonderful Lincoln Library, which has since been sold, but Endicott College in Beverly at one time had a beautiful Lincoln Library, and there were so many artifacts uh, for for us to appreciate. It was only open once in a while. It was not open to the public all the time because they were trying to protect these documents, and it's since been sold, and uh, I'm not sure where, but as you know, Steve, it just having the ability to see some of these things, to be able to experience um, reading the actual documents, it's really breathtaking. Oh, sure. And one of the things that they, the Minutemen still carry on the, the common uh, during the reenactment on April 19th is one of the original muskets used by the Minutemen on that green in 1775. Oh, wow. Yeah. So fascinating. Um, we, we've just begun our hour, Steve, and we've got three wonderful people that we're going to welcome. And uh, the first, speaking of Lincoln, um, the first guest, Barbara Jakowski, is going to share with us a story that she has written um, about. Lincoln is, is a very important part of this, this story, and this little girl that she writes of is going to uh, do what she can for a very specific reason to find Lincoln. Ghost. We're here today on Military Mom Talk Radio. You're listening to us, Robin Boyd and Stephen Boyd, with you this hour, and we'll be right back in just a few minutes with Barbara Jakowski. We've got lots more ahead. Stay with us on Military Mom Talk Radio. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the Million Dollar Mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the Million Dollar Mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. We're back with more great conversation on Military Mom Talk Radio. Welcome back, Military Moms. This is Robin Boyd with you today and Stephen Boyd joining me, our veteran correspondent. 
Uh, today we're, is Author Day, and our first author, Barbara Jakowski, is uh, an author. This is her debut book, as a matter of fact. And uh, Searching for Lincoln's Ghost offers an authentic look at a coming-of-age story during the tumultuous 1960s. Been there, done that. <laughs> I want to say welcome, Barbara, to Military Mom Talk Radio. There you are. Here. Hi, can you hear Barbara. me now? Yes. Now I can. Good. <laughs> Welcome. You're calling us from Indiana, is that correct? South Bend, Indiana, the home of Notre Dame. Oh, wow. Well, we'll give a good route from Indiana for that. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you to writing after um, all of the other endeavors that you had done in life? Uh, somewhere was a story just itching to come out. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, in his essays, the great writer Emerson wrote, always do what you are afraid to do. And this was one of the major themes of Searching for Lincoln's Ghost. Um, As you you said, it's a coming-of-age story. It's a historical novel about growing up in the mid-60s when the country was still largely segregated. Um, And change, as you know, is often the breeding ground for our deepest fears. Our Mm -hmm. fears cripple us in so many ways. It's the catalyst for all forms of abuse and oppression and intolerance. And so Searching for Lincoln's Ghost, it begins as a look back from an adult's perspective, but at its heart it's a story about a young, lonely girl who's also dealing with great fear and change in her life. Mm. And her fear is one probably beginning of vulnerability, which we all experience in one way, shape, or form. But her vulnerability was certainly one that no one would hope a little girl would have to face. Absolutely. She's lost both her parents in a car accident, and she's being raised by a grandmother who's still deeply grieving over the loss of her her own daughter. And so her grandmother is largely obsessed with death. Um, And so Andy, although she's only 11 years old, she grows up thinking a lot about death. And she harbors a lot of fears and anxiety about dying and wondering what's happened to her parents. So she's on a mission to discover if there really is such a thing as life after death by going on a ghost hunt for Abraham Lincoln's ghost, which (laughs) purportedly haunts her school's auditorium. Hmm. Now, why Abraham Lincoln, what was the significance of you utilizing this person in history as opposed to maybe any other? It could have been George Washington. It could have been um, Benjamin. (laughs) You're absolutely, well, you know, studying the life of Lincoln is a part of every American childhood. Mm -hmm. And it captivated my own childhood at the age of 11. So that was kind of, you know, my own experience. And also that Lincoln is this iconic hero that most everyone can relate to. He's kind of our collective moral compass, if you will. And um, so, you know, he's just that iconic hero that we can all identify with. And the other thing about it is when I was wanting to write a tale about this particular age group and this particular time in history, I stumbled across all this wonderful Lincoln folklore that I had not been aware of. And I felt that I read 
more about Lincoln than, than, you know, the average person. And I was, I really found a lot of great stuff out there. And chief of which was a lot of great folklore about how Lincoln's ghost haunts the White House still. If you go on the mm-hmm. White House website, they, you'll read about Lincoln's ghost. It's, it's one of those things. He supposedly haunts the tomb in Springfield. There's a lot of charming, um, legends out there about Lincoln's ghost. And, you know, ghost stories are a part of childhood. So it oh, seemed sure. a really good hook to, to share those intriguing pieces of history and, you know, some of the, the, the imagination that people have of seeing Lincoln's ghost with tying it into a story about this age. Hmm. Hmm. Did you expect this to be a young people's book or were you really looking for the adults save in, in my generation and Steve's generation that are kind of looking back to a more innocent era? Well, you know, that's a great question. I, it's, you know, it's a young adult book and I really, you know, I want to emphasize, so although the book covers many issues, it's a short book. It's a fast read, um, but it's got a lot of substantive issues that it covered. And what really inspired me to write it was um, the horrible lack of empathy and tolerance we're seeing in so many of today's headlines, things like Mm -hmm. bullying, which is, you know, so much in the forefront now, child Mm -hmm. abuse, all, you know, and I think the period of life from age 11 to 14 is one of the most pivotal times in our character development, really shaping the kind of adults that we become. And so I think it's a wonderful perspective to examine hard social issues and human nature through the painfully honest and impressionable lens of childhood. And I wanted to use that period of life to explore the motivations of why do people hurt other people? How do we first learn fear and prejudice? And also to examine the power of empathy that we all possess to make a a positive difference. Um, you know, I, I've had a lot of adult readers. I meant it as, you know, and this was a group that even grandparents could read with young readers because the boomer generation are, you know, now at the age where we have, you know, grandchildren that are mm. of age to read this. Sure. And it is uh, a little um, exposing of some very delicate topics. For example, you did choose to uh, bring up uh, sex abuse issues mm-hmm. was that um something you felt was needed to complete the story or well, did you go yeah, ahead i'm sorry yeah no i think you know um you know, I think of the, of all the crimes um, that we're looking at when we're looking at bullying and prejudice and all these other issues, I think that, that child sex abuse, particularly by clergy, is mm-hmm. one of the most horrific crimes of all. And I really wanted to, that was kind of the kingpin issue that I wanted to center the story around. I mean, the 60s was a time when it was even expression, children are seen, but they're not heard. And um, this was the time when many of these type of crimes were being perpetrated, but certainly it didn't come to the forefront till even 20 years later. Uh, but, you know, no one is entrusted with a more sacred, intimate trust than our holy people. And um, they are the ultimate mentor, so they are, can become ultimately the ultimate betrayer. And um, so I really wanted to just kind of relate the issues of the past 
the heat issues. We were right in the middle of changing things with segregation and tie some of those same type of issues in the past with some of the things we're dealing with today. One of the things that I also was wondering, because the um, abuse was focused on this boy that the that your protagonist is is really smitten with mm-hmm. um i think the boy was vulnerable in his own way because he was not believed his parents didn't believe him the church didn't believe him and that vulnerability uh made him a very alone oh, person absolutely absolutely when adults don't believe or listen to children um, you know, and, and again, that that happens to, to many children, especially back in that era of life, I think. Um, you know, it, it just, the cascade of, of, of complications and pain is that much deeper. I mean, you know, many times we think kids are resilient, and we say that all the time. We always say kids are resilient, but kids aren't resilient. They just learn how to stuff their pain, I think, deeper, and, and it, you know, it's something that they carry with them. Again, if you look at the bullying issue, there's so much on that nowadays, and many adults who were bullied as children um, can still recall, um, you know, what the person looked like, where they were when this happened. This is not something, it changes us. It changes us, and kids just know how to stuff it in a deeper place. Yeah. Did uh, any other authors uh, influence you when writing this book, Barbara? Well, I think the major author that influenced me, I would have to say, was Harper Lee's classic, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, She, um, you know, that book had an enormous influence on me. And I really wanted to try to write a story that was kind of similar in tone and style, a look back, but looking at a completely different era in our history. Sure, sure. Um, What do you think is more important in fiction, uh, great characters or a great plot? Um, I'm all about characters. I think, you know, you can, re- you can read great books, great exciting books, great exciting plots, but I don't know that those are the books that stick with you. I think the books that really stick with you are when we care about the characters and when we learn something about ourselves. Sure. And even if we don't change our beliefs, um, we reinforce then what we believe. We have more of, of a, a reason to believe the way we're believing. So I think those are the really great books when we care about the characters and we feel as if it's happening to us. Right. Mm. Barbara, where can uh, we find your book? Because I'm sure that you have some goals for this book and possibly you have more stories now that you've gotten this one launched. I hope that there's more to come. Well, I, I'm actually almost finished, with, or I should say, um, with hoping to publish later this year my second novel, which is also a novel about the 60s, mostly the cataclysmic year of 1968. But this one is definitely an adult story um, dealing with some of the social issues of, of that time, um, mm-hmm. including the, the era of you know Martin Luther King's assassination and Robert Kennedy's assassination. Mm. But basically, if readers are interested, they can find Searching for Lincoln's Ghost on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, a number of smaller bookstores, um, it, it, and certainly my check out my website, which happens to be my name, so it's it's a difficult website. So if you just <laughs> Google in Searching for Lincoln's Ghost, it will come up. 
That's wonderful. Barbara Joukowsky, and thank you for helping me with the pronunciation. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I did that correctly. We appreciate it so much. Thanks sure. for coming. Okay, thank, thank you. you. All right, bye-bye. Stay tuned. We'll meet Joe Epley right after the break. We've got lots more ahead. Stay with us on Military Mom Talk Radio. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. We're back with more great conversation on Military Mom Talk Radio. Welcome back, Military Moms. This is Robin Boyd with you today, along with Steve Boyd, our veteran correspondent, joining me today as we have a wonderful uh, chat with three uh, very, very interesting authors. We just spoke with Barbara Jakovsky, and so that you know how to spell that, her last name is D, as in uh, Delta, Z as in zebra, I-K-O-W-S-K-I, Barbara J. Jakowski. Jakowski. And I am so sorry, Barbara. I'm trying really hard. Um, she did say search for Lincoln's ghost. Searching for Lincoln's ghost is the best way to find it. And if you go to Google, you can search that title and you will find her. Uh, coming up now, we have Joe Epley. Uh, after a career that included the Army's elite Green Berets, television journalism, and a successful global public relations practice, Joe Epley retired in 2005 to the the North Carolina mountains and a new career of writing historical novels began. Thank you for joining us. Welcome, Joe. Welcome, Joe. Uh, it's a delight to be here. Wonderful to have you. Well, you have uh, certainly started out with something that did not appear to be a historic novel uh, background, and you certainly hit the hit the ground running when you put pen to paper and developed a passel of hate. Um, was this brewing in you for a long time, or was the American Revolutionary War something that was close to your heart? Well, it's always been close to my heart. I was born and raised uh, here in western North Carolina, not too far from where the Battle of Kings Mountain and the Battle of Cowpens were fought. Uh, and it, since I was a kid, I, I walked those battlefields. But it was only after I retired that I really started getting into more than just the surface stories about uh, those two, two battles, and particularly about the people who fought there. You know, uh, uh, the... Uh, 
Battle of Kings Mountain in particular was a more of a family affair. There in the 2,000 participants, there were 42 sets of brothers, 18 father-son sets, a whole slew of uncles, cousins, nephews, and not all of them fighting on the same side. Uh, when I read about uh, four Goforth brothers whose bodies were found on the battlefield, I found out that three of them were Tories and one was a Whig. Uh, and wow. it set me to thinking, why? how did people live, how did families cope with... Uh, with family members uh, having different uh, political viewpoints to the point that they would be fighting each other. And so I started writing from that perspective. Hmm. Joe, how uh, widespread was the independence movement in the Carolinas? Uh, in your book, it tells about uh, the plantations being sparsely uh, spread out there. Uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't a big popular uprising, as most revolutions uh or not. Uh, you had, uh, I think even John Adams who said that there was about a one-third, one-third, one-third split. You know, one-third uh, for independence, one-third for the king, and a third, uh, uh, just leave me alone. Sure. Uh, here in the Western Carolinas, I think it was more like a 20-20-60 uh, split. Uh, the, uh, with the majority just wanting to be left alone, you know, this was a very remote uh, area. We were at the edge of the wilderness uh, where I'm living right now. And, uh, and so the revolution really it came in bits and spurses of, of uh, Tory groups and uh, Whig groups fighting each other. Uh, until the British invaded in 17, invaded South Carolina in 1780. And then in the, the latter part of the summer, they got up, it pretty much took control of all of South Carolina. And a fellow by the name of Patrick Ferguson, who was a British officer in charge of the militia uh, and provincial forces, he would be pretty similar mission to what today's uh, Green Beret's mission is and uh, working with indigenous forces. Of course. Uh, and when he uh, came up into the West, suddenly people started taking sides more seriously. People also would swap sides. You never knew who, which side they were on sometimes. <laughs> Viet Cong. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and there were a lot of folks who, uh, just as you're having in Afghanistan uh, today, who uses the war as an excuse for plundering and uh, burning houses and uh, getting retributions, uh, family revenge, and things of that nature. All of that took place at that time, uh, but uh, but people got uh, tired once they once they became at their on their doorsteps. Then they buckled down and started fighting with more seriousness. And uh, sure. and I took uh, I had a lot of uh, concerns about how first it's at the Battle of Kings Mountain. Uh, how did a force uh, of uh, particularly with a cadre of professional soldiers of about one-tenth of uh, Ferguson's forces. Ferguson, by the way, was the only British officer in that battle. How did they let themselves uh, get defeated by a group of militia forces, and uh, many of them who hadn't been fighting together? Uh, they didn't even know where the, uh, the loyalists were located until about an, a couple of hours before the battle. They had no time to reconnoiter the battlefield, and yet they surrounded this little hilltop, and uh, and destroyed uh, the enemy in a less than a one hour firefight. Uh, so it, it's been a very interesting in taking what you, you know about military science today uh, and trying to apply that to how these different groups work and into the personalities of the commanders. That in itself was a totally different story. 
But uh, it tried to weave all these stories in there. Uh, the story with the one fictional family I put into the story was one who was split with three brothers fighting for the king, uh, two fighting on uh, the uh, the loyal on the Whig side for independence. Sure. Uh, the uh, and and following the whole uh, development of the King's Mountain campaign through the eyes of one of those brothers, sure. uh, and uh, that's sort of how it sort of evolved and, and came came to a, a conclusion. Uh, sure. Uh, uh, what what impact did the battle have on the outcome of the war itself? Uh, it, uh, it it looked like such a small battle, but was it significant? It, it was a very significant battle. Thomas Jefferson said that it was the tide in the turn of success. Uh, the turn, pardon me, the turn in the tide of success for our independence. Uh, up to that time, the British had complete victories. They had taken South Carolina. They had annihilated the Southern Army in Charleston when they captured the city of Charleston. Uh, the new army was put together under uh, under General Gates. They came down. They met at Camden. Uh, the uh, Cornwallis wiped them out, uh, suffered a humiliating defeat against Gates. In fact, he left right. the battlefield running ahead of his troops. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't stop until he got to Upper North Carolina. Right. <laughs> and, uh, but what it did is it gave confidence to the militia that one they could stand up and fight. Uh, it gave confidence. It gave made the Tory people who had Tory leanings think twice before joining uh, the Tory forces. Uh, and then this was followed just a few months later at Cowpens when some uh, colonials came on down south, and then under uh, they and militia under uh, Daniel Morgan met. Uh, Bannister's Tarleton at uh, at Calpans, and for the first time, a predominant militia force uh, from the uh, uh, the uh, the Whig side uh, defeated a regular British soldiers right. uh, because there were very few Tory militia in, in Calpans. Sure, that and was significant. It was a very significant battle, uh, and uh, then they continued on, and uh, so Kings Mountain really was that turning point. Otherwise, uh, you know, Cornwallis would have forced Cornwallis, who had already invaded Charlotte, North Carolina, to uh, uh, to retreat back south uh, to regroup himself because with the loss at Kings Mountain, he lost about a fourth of his invasion force. Ferguson's job was to do two, two things. One was to quell the rebellion in the west, and two was to provide the western flank security for his main uh, main force uh, army. Sure. Uh, why is the Battle of Kings Mountain called the family affair? Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's because you had so many brothers and uh, father-son groups uh, fighting there. Sure. Uh, you had uh, three Edmonton brothers from Virginia were killed there. Uh, I, in my own family, I didn't know this until even after I read the book, but the, that it was on my mother's side of the family were five camp brothers. Uh, two of them were Tories. Three of them were, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, were Whigs. And yet none of them, uh, they all got through the battle, uh, didn't get hurt. And the family legend goes is that after the battle, they were marching over 600 prisoners westward. Uh, they decided they would hang uh, a bunch of those who they figured to be the, uh, the committed criminal offenses. Uh, they actually did hang nine men, including the commander of the Tory forces. Uh, but the uh, the uh, independence uh, liberty men um, 
and that's what they called themselves really in those days, uh, went to their commanders and said, look, we want to take our wayward brothers home with them. We don't want them to get home. We don't like what they did, but you let us take them home and we'll lock them up in an outbuilding for the remainder of the war. Sure. And, and that they did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Wow. Joe, I have to say one of the things that was so striking to me about this book was your ability to take this down to such a personal level because every character, uh, the, the story was through each character as opposed to us knowing what probably was happening as as two governments were clashing. We were looking at all of this through the eyes of each person. We do have to wrap up the segment, but I, before we go, Joe, I do want to make sure that everybody knows where the they where they can find a parcel of hate uh of course it's available at amazon it's available uh in both in print and uh on kindle it's also available on barnes and noble uh bookstores can order it uh, this is a self-published book of uh, print on demand or they can go to my website uh, at com for additional information We'd love to hear from you. Check us out at MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Our shows are available on iTunes anytime from 0 hundred hours to 23.59. For now, stay right where you are. There's more Military Mom Talk Radio after these messages. Hey moms, dads, and grandparents. This is Sandra Beck from Military Mom Talk Radio, and I know how hard it is to provide a great education for military kids. K-12 believes every child is uniquely brilliant. So to prepare them for college and succeed beyond high school, they deserve an education designed just for them. Learn more at k12.com grade about enrollment. A child's brilliance comes in many forms. Some are curious, others inventive, some are analytical. K-12 is a full-time, tuition-free, online option to traditional public school. Taught by state-certified teachers, schools powered by K-12 provide an individualized education, enhancing your child's ability to succeed. K-12 programs teach to and embrace your child's unique brilliance. Students from K-12-powered schools go on to fine colleges and universities, enhancing their ability to succeed in life. Be part of the community of families who have succeeded with a tuition-free online K-12 education. K-12 welcomes students from grade K to 12. Visit k12.com front slash grade or call 855-628-9531 for more information about enrolling. That's k12.com front slash grade. We're back with more great conversation on Military Mom Talk Radio. Welcome back, Military Moms. This is Robin Boyd with you today, uh, joined by our veteran correspondent, Steve Boyd. If you've missed any of this show, you're going to want to grab the podcast because this has been such a powerful show uh, so far, and it's not over yet. First, we met Barbara Jakowski. She was the author of uh, Searching for Lincoln's Ghost. We just had a marvelous conversation with Joe Epley, who describes a lot of uh, very, very tough situations. 
situations in the American Revolution in A Passel of Hate. And coming up, we're going to meet Rochelle Rogers, who uh, is a living testimony of how her faith has guided her to emerge victorious and will give a voice to those who are overwhelmed by despair and anger. You have had an incredible background, and it's given you uh, an incredible voice for all of us to listen to, Rochelle. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I know that this uh, story has been uh, a testimony. So is this an uh, autobiographical story? Is this a um, something for us to pause well, and consider? Basically, it's an inspirational autobiographical piece, mm-hmm. um, which really outlines as far as uh, taking over and coming out victorious as a result of going through some adverse situations in your life, such as poverty, domestic violence, and racism. Hmm. Both of our stories so far that we've heard today, one was a coming-of-age story from the 60s, and there were some racial issues that were very strong in that book. Of course, the American Revolution uh, posed some very difficult times that our country was going through some growing pains and some um, issues. How? What were some of the challenges that you, in our gener- this generation, had to face? Well, let me, um, before going into the challenges, let me set the scenario for my childhood okay. upbringing. Mm-hmm. I think that will give you a clear picture. Um, I grew up in a family with uh, one sister. She was like five years older than myself. My mother was a God-fearing Christian woman who worked as a beautician, and my father was a deputy sheriff for the county of Philadelphia. By today's standard, one might say we were poor. However, my mother and father managed to provide us with the right things in life, such as we had dancing lessons, singing lessons, and were able to play musical instruments. So I never thought of ourselves as being poor, even though mm-hmm. our parents worked very hard for their money. Mm. As far as the challenges, I would say the biggest challenge for me, and I'm sure for my sister as well, was the domestic violence. Mm. Um, my mother and father fought a lot about other women in my father's life, my mom was like a little four foot eleven, and my dad was six foot one. However, mm-hmm. my mother was a fighter and knew how to retaliate. Um, when dad, my father was bad, he would throw things because he knew his hands were dangerous. You know, because he was a deputy sheriff and he was also an expert in judo. Okay. Mm-hmm. However, uh, I only recall getting one spanking from him, so I made it out pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you were the lucky one. (laughs) Right, right. Um, But Dad was also a drinker and gambler and um, Mm -hmm. had been known to blow a whole paycheck on gambling. Some some nights he would not even come home. But, however, to me, the tragic day was the day after Thanksgiving when he shot his mistress and then turned the gun on himself, taking both of their lives. I personally do not recall a lot about my childhood, and the other lady had mentioned earlier as far as children tend to put things deep inside, that's probably what I did, okay? However, I also admired, I also focused on learning in school and greatly admired the nuns who taught me um, at St. Columbus Elementary School at the time. Hmm. Another big challenge for me was racism, which was prevalent in the 1960s. I vividly remember the day when I was called the N-word from one of my female classmates. 
and I basically chalked that up to her ignorance at the time and ignored her, mm-hmm. okay? And what really stands out for me in this area was when I attended a very prestigious high school in Philadelphia, and I was the only African-American in the school, and I graduated. Was, Come again? Uh, uh, it was a parochial school? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I graduated in the top 10 out of approximately um, just 100 seniors at the time. Wow. However, I was never canceled about going to college and applying for scholarships. However, the guy was on my side, okay, because I applied late to um, Yale University and the St. Joseph University and was accepted at both, but could only afford to attend St. Joe's with a school loan because I didn't believe in putting that responsibility on my mother after she's gone through all that she's gone through in life. Okay? Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so God was, was in my life and my total trust was in him, and I knew at that time I would get a very good education in spite of what had happened. Sure. So I guess to sum it up, I have the challenge of domestic violence, poverty, and racism growing up. However, I continue to keep my faith and unconditional trust in God. And he saw me through these obstacles and opened up other doors for me to accomplish my goals. Now, was, how did the military fit in all of this? Was so many young people go into the military to escape what their uh, home life was uh-huh. presenting them? Was that your reason? No. Uh, actually, I, had, I went to high school in a convent. It was a convent high school in Reading, mm-hmm. Pennsylvania. And that happened through what I call a spiritual epiphany before the Blessed Sacrament because I was sitting there before the Blessed Sacrament and something told me to go to the back of the church and I picked up this Catholic newspaper advertising for aspirants at Mount St. Michael's High School and I applied and was accepted. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I went to a common high school for my freshman, sophomore, and junior year. And then they closed down the school after junior year. And then my last year is when I went to the school I had mentioned earlier, the prestigious one in Philadelphia. Okay, after I did that, I did attend St. Joe's for a semester. I made the dean's list and all that, and but I didn't feel like an adult. And I was very concerned as far as, number one, getting my education. Number two, I would say, as far as learning a skill. And number three, traveling, okay? And those were three things that the military offered me at that time. Mm, mm-hmm. So, yes, I was very excited about it. And uh, it was really a big turn because, you know, coming from a convent into the military, although people may think they're so different, there's a lot of commonalities there. You know, you get good discipline and dedication. And I would say... Entering the convent and joining the military provided me with great discipline and self-confidence. Sure, sure. Yeah, and it also taught me to be accountable for myself. And do you feel that all of this was because of your religion that you were able to, or your belief in God, or because of all of what you have experienced, whether it be personally or through the military, uh, was what drew you closer to God? Well, I think uh, being in a convent high school definitely brought me closer to God, because we, mm-hmm. we did everything like almost the nuns did, just about mm. So I had that spiritual connection, but it's, uh, I always felt that God was with me, 
I mean, even when I was in the military, I remember being in that bunker the first night and just crying. I said, oh, my God, what have I done with my life? But I tell you, joining the military was one of the best decisions of my life. Hmm. Where where did you serve? I served in um, 97th General Hospital in Frankfurt, West Germany. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for your service. Okay. Why did you pick the title Forever Growing, A Journey of Trust? Well, I firmly believe that each day is a gift from God, okay? And it provides us with the opportunity to, I think, continue to grow in our faith and our trust regardless of our age. Hmm. That is offering, I feel, us a new and exciting beginnings. Hence, we are forever growing in our journey of trust with God. One day at a time, one moment at a time. That's it. That's beautiful. I think so many times we do need a book like yours to pull us back, to get us to refocus, because so many times I think life takes us. And I think being able to sit down with a book like yours is just a wonderful opportunity for us to regroup and find the thing in our inner hearts that are most important. Rochelle, we're going to need to close the segment, but I want people to know where to find your book. Where can we go? Okay, it's available to order on my website at www.rochellerogers, that's R-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-R-O-D-G-E-R-S.com. Okay. And it's also available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Available in paperback as well as an ebook. Uh, well, it's a beautiful book. Rochelle Rogers, uh, Forever Growing a Journey of Trust. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Of our show broadcasts, we get a lot of great feedback when we have authors on, and one in particular who we featured recently is Richard C. Geschke. He and co author Robert Toto wrote two books in our duffel bags, and a compilation of poetry specific to the Vietnam era titled Shadows of Combat. And their experiences have touched the lives and hearts of many veterans, including our veteran correspondent, Stephen Boyd. One poem in particular speaks to Geschke's final mission of his job, and then he would be heading home. Here are the words of Richard Geschke, spoken by Stephen Boyd, in The Last Chopper Ride. told to go back to Fubai, the return of the prodigal son. My orders were simple, close down Fubai. Time for us Americans to go. My job was to dispose of the equipment. Where will it go? Will it stay in Vietnam or go to Okinawa? My job was to assess the assets and do it very quickly. It was early morning on the helipad, boarding the slick to go north to Fubai. The sun was rising in the east. A fireball red disc in the sky. Beautiful. Zigzagging at treetop levels to avoid gunfire, we made our way north. As I looked at the rice fields and farms below, I noticed it was not raining. 
Near Fubai, there was actual sunshine. It was not raining. No monsoons. Conducting business was quick and decisive. Mission accomplished. The sun was beginning to set in the Asha Valley. Time to head home. Going south to Da Nang, the sunset was streaming through the rivers as I saw Fubai in a different light, one of red-orange hues streaming from the west without the thought of the monsoon rains, which was prevalent on the fields of my tour of wonderful Fubai. Fubai is all right. Thinking back to my last chopper ride. Richard C. Geshke, Fubai, South Vietnam, March 1972. And Steve, that was wonderfully done. Thank you. Hey, my pleasure. And thanks for joining me today, and thanks to all of you for being here with the two of us. We hope you'll join us again next time on Military Mom Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in to Military Mom Talk Radio. Want more information? Check us out at MilitaryMomTalkRadio.com or find us on iTunes for more than 200 free episodes. Drop us an email or find us on Facebook. We are looking forward to another great discussion. We hope you'll join us on Military Mom Talk Radio.